Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Now, this episode is on Mary, Mother of God and Our Mother. Now, depending on who you are, you might hear those words and maybe your eye starts twitching a little bit, right? (laughs) Maybe you sort of wince and think like, oh, okay, I don't like the way that Catholics talk about Mary. Or maybe you're completely fine with the church's teachings on Mary, but you know someone who isn't. And I have found, you know, in my own discussions with friends of mine who are Protestant, that there are two main objections that people seem to have to Mary. The first one is that, you know, the way that Catholics talk about Mary is just over the top, right? We just spend way too much time focusing on her. And the way that we talk about her, it makes it sound like she's almost like God, right? Like we're putting them on the same level. And then the second objection is that, you know, the Catholic Church's teachings on Mary seem to have come almost out of nowhere and quite recently. Like they'll sort of say, you know, it's only in the last couple of hundred years that the Catholic Church has suddenly made all of these declarations about Mary, right? And we've suddenly had this focus on Mary that A, isn't biblical, and B, doesn't reflect what the church actually believed for the, like, 1,500 years prior. So those are the kind of main objections that we're going to sort of tackle in this episode. We're going to look at the Catholic Church's teachings on Mary and think about how these teachings, far from drawing our attention away from Christ and encouraging us to worship Mary, actually draw our attention to Christ and encourage us to worship him. And as well as this, they're not just things that have just cropped up in the last couple of hundred years. They're actually beliefs that have been part of the church's tradition for 2000 years, ever since the beginnings of Christianity. So before we go too deeply into what the church does believe about Mary, it might be useful to discuss what the church doesn't believe. Okay. Now, you might remember from the episode on divine revelation, we talked about this image of a walled garden, right? And the importance of understanding the limits of what we believe. Because once we've established those boundaries within them, we can go nuts, right? Like we can do whatever we want because we know that we're not going to kind of wander into dangerous, uncharted territory or accidentally slip into heresy, right? So, What does the Catholic Church not teach about Mary? Well, the first thing is that it does not teach that Mary is like a god, right? Or that she's on the same level as God. In fact, the Church doesn't even believe that Mary has any power of her own at all whatsoever outside of God. Mary, like the rest of us, is a created human being who doesn't merit anything on her own and depends entirely on the grace of God. So as Catholics, we don't believe that Mary is amazing because of something that she has done, okay? We believe that she is amazing because of the things God has done for her. So the image that's often used to express this is the image of the moon, right? The moon shines brightly, not because it has any light of its own, but because it reflects the light that's coming from the sun. So this is something that I've heard Father Mike Schmitz say. He points out that when we read the Gospels, We don't ever see Mary doing anything particularly spectacular, right? Like she doesn't like start a school or go around healing people or preaching, you know, or or giving to the poor or, you know, I mean, she probably did give to the poor, but we don't definitely don't read about it in the Gospels. Rather, what we see Mary doing 
over and over again throughout the Gospels is just saying yes to God, accepting his will. And if you remember, when we talked about Adam and Eve in the episode on original sin, we talked about how God showered them with graces and the only thing that he asked of them was that they accept them. And of course, Adam and Eve didn't, but Mary did. And that's what we see her doing throughout the Gospels is accepting the will of God and allowing him to work in her life and putting no obstacles in the way. In fact, not only does she not put any obstacles in the way, but she's continually bringing people to him or bringing him to others. So we see this, for instance, in the Gospels, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary in the Gospel of Luke and says, hey, do you want to be the mother of the Messiah? And her instant response to that question is, I am the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to your word. In other words, God, I'm your servant. I will do whatever you want. Okay, she instantly says yes. And then what does she do? She immediately goes to her cousin Elizabeth. She brings our Lord in her womb to her cousin. And what does she say when she gets there? What's the first thing that comes out of her mouth? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord right? She doesn't say, my soul magnifies me, okay? I'm so amazing. She immediately draws our focus upward to God. And she goes on to say, from henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. Now, when I was a kid and I heard those words, I didn't really understand what they meant. And I kind of thought that Mary was essentially saying, from henceforth, all generations will call me awesome. (laughs) And I sort of thought like, oh gosh, Mary's a bit full of herself, right? Like getting around saying that she's super blessed. But that's exactly the opposite of what Mary is saying. What she's saying is that from now on, people are going to look at me And they're going to say, wow, look at the wonderful things that God has done. So she understands that her role is to accept God's graces and then draw our attention to them. Yeah. And invite us to be in awe of the amazing things that God has done. And then we see, you know, in the wedding feast at Cana, right? Mary sees that there's a problem and she doesn't sort of come running in going like, all right, I've got the solution. I've got a plan. No. What does she do? She brings a bunch of people to Jesus plonks them in front of him and tells them, do whatever he tells you. All she does is bring other people to Christ. And not only does Mary bring others to Christ, she also implicitly in that moment accepts whatever Jesus' will is. Because she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, she doesn't say do whatever he tells you so long as it's what I want. (laughs) She says do whatever he tells you. So Jesus could easily have just said to them, go back to your seats. It's fine. It's nothing. Okay, she brings people to God and then accepts whatever God's will is for them. And then, of course, we see this supreme example of her accepting the will of God at the foot of the cross. Right. Like, stop and think about that for a second. What mother do you know of who could stand there and watch her only child being brutally tortured and killed in front of her and just accept that that's the will of God? Like, that's incredible. Even the apostles couldn't do that. Like, Peter spends a significant amount of time trying to convince Jesus that his crucifixion should not happen, to the point where Jesus actually has to, like, turn to him and be like, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Sickest burn in all of history. (laughs) I remember my sister once said that to me when I was <laughs> I was trying to get her to do the wrong thing. I forget what it was when I was a kid. And she whipped around to me and said, get behind me, Caitlin. 
<laughs> oh, I was crushed. I can confirm that it is a sick burn. But the apostles couldn't cope with that idea. And when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see them all like whipping their swords out and cutting people's ears off and being like, we'll save you. And Jesus has to be like, guys, this is the will of my father. This is this is what I want. Like, you have to accept my will. And they can't cope. They all run off. <laughs> And yet, there we see Mary, who is closer to Jesus than any of the apostles, right? She's literally his mum, standing, remaining at the foot of the cross, accepting God's will. She doesn't throw herself in front of the centurion. She doesn't try to stop the crucifixion, despite the fact that she is in an incredible amount of pain, right? Like a sword is piercing her heart. And yet she accepts that this is God's will. So as Catholics, we look at all of this and we say, oh my gosh, Mary is a perfect channel of God's grace. More than anyone else in the Gospels, she is consistently saying yes to God's will, pondering his words in her heart and bringing other people to him. And that is why we think that she's so amazing. But while we think that she's amazing, we don't think that that makes her like on par with God, right? Like Mary is a created human being, just like the rest of us. And this leads us to the second thing that the Catholic Church does not teach about Mary. Remember how we were talking about the boundaries of church teaching about 10 minutes ago and then I got completely distracted and sidetracked? Yeah, we're now getting back on point. Okay, the second thing that the church doesn't teach about Mary, the church does not teach that we could ever or should ever worship Mary, okay, or treat her like a god. Fun fact, there actually was like a sect of women in like, I think it was like the third or fourth century, who started to actually worship Mary, right? Like they would offer sacrifices to her and like have all these rituals around her. It was really messed up. And that sect got squished by the church pretty quickly, okay? Because that's heresy. Like that goes against the first commandment. Only God gets our worship. The church is very clear on that. Now, does that mean that we can't pray to Mary in the same way that we pray to all of the other saints? Yeah, of course we can pray to Mary. But when we pray to her, we're not saying, hey, Mary, can you please use your special Mary powers to do this thing for me? What we're saying is, hey, Mary, you're the mum of Jesus. Could you go and ask him to do this thing for me? In the same way that, like, when I want my best friend to do something, I will badger her to do that thing personally, but I'll also go and have a chat to the other people who she's closest to, like her parents or her siblings or her boyfriend, right? And I'll be like, hey, can you please get in her ear and, and like ask her about this as well? And this is actually something that all Christians do, right? Like, have you ever said to a friend of yours, oh, hey, could you say a prayer for me? I've got an exam coming up. Or oh, could you pray for my dad? He's not feeling well or whatever. We're always going to other people and asking them to pray with us to God. Okay, that's exactly the same thing that we do with Mary and the saints. But that is very different to saying that we worship Mary or that we think that she has any specific power of her own that doesn't come directly from God. So within these boundaries, knowing that Mary is not God and that we don't worship her, right, we can go crazy. Yeah, we we can never say too much about how fantastic Mary is. We cannot talk her up too much because we know that no matter how much we talk her up, no matter how many wonderful things we say about her, we're never going to get her confused with God, okay? In fact, the more we recognize Mary's goodness and beauty, the more we give glory to the God who is her creator, right? So think of it like this. I don't know if you've ever been to see the Mona Lisa in Paris, okay? (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that might have been the snobbiest thing that has ever come out of my mouth. I don't know if you've ever um, been to the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa, because I have. <laughs> okay, I apologise, but I am sticking with the analogy. If you go into the Louvre where she is, or sorry, in my French accent, the Louvre where she is, you walk in and the way that she's displayed is really interesting. First of all, she has her own wall, right? There's an entire like area dedicated to this one painting and there's like a spotlight on the painting and it's like encased in this bulletproof glass and there's like a rope around it so you can't get too close and the crowds, like it's like walking into a Beatles concert or something. Like there are people everywhere trying to get close to the Mona Lisa, admiring her, taking photos of her, taking selfies with her, etc. Now, Imagine that I walked into that room and I saw all of that happening and my instant reaction was to be like, oh my gosh, no, guys, this is terrible. What are you doing? Stop talking about how amazing the Mona Lisa is. We need to be talking about how amazing Leonardo da Vinci is. Now, if I said that, chances are that that room full of people would turn around to me and be like, Caitlin, you're a dingus. Okay, that is exactly what we're doing. And if I were to walk in and like take the painting off the wall and be like, okay, that's it. I'm putting it in the basement. We need to put her out of sight. Okay, we need, we're spending too much time focusing on her. We need to be focusing on Leonardo da Vinci. There would be something kind of ludicrous about that. Okay, because as long as we understand that the painting didn't paint herself, yeah, like we're not standing there being like, wow, it's so amazing how the Mona Lisa gave herself that incredible smile. How did she do that? Okay, as long as we understand that that's the creation and not the creator, then we can talk it up as much as we like. And the more we do that, the more we honor the creator. Okay, so you might hear all of that and think, all right, well, that makes sense. Like Mary doesn't draw our attention away from God. She draws our attention to God. And when we venerate her, we're actually giving honor and glory to God. That all is fine. That all makes sense. But there might still be a kind of lingering feeling of like, okay, but why Mary in particular, right? Like, why do Catholics have this special relationship with Mary? There have been plenty of incredible saints throughout history, but why Mary in particular? Well, there are a few reasons why. The first is that Mary is literally the mother of God. Okay, now this is an idea that has been around since the beginnings of Christianity, and we read about it in the writings of the early church fathers, like Cyril of Alexandria, and Jerome, and St. Ambrose, and Athanasius. Like, there are so many early church fathers who reference Mary as the mother of God. And this was a belief that actually was declared official church dogma at the Council of Ephesus in the 5th century. Okay, so it's a pretty old one. Now, by saying that Mary is the mother of God, of course, we're not saying that she existed before God or that she created God or that she is above or even equal to God. What we're saying is that Mary, this created human person, gave birth to Jesus, who is fully God. Okay, so Mary is literally the mother of God. And to deny that would be to deny Jesus' divinity. And when we think about it, the fact that Mary is the mother of God, that's no small thing. 
right? Like, like think about just mothers in general. What an important relationship that is. Like, <laughs> there's this quote from、um, this like '90s rom-com that I absolutely love called French Kiss. It stars Meg Ryan, and it's fantastic. And there's this bit where she's talking to her sort of love interest, and she says to him, "You know, do you believe in in true love between a man and a woman?" And he says, "Oh, well, I love my mother." And she says, "No, everyone loves their mothers. Even people who hate their mothers love their mothers." <laughs> I love that quote, but it's so true, right? That even when A relationship between a mother and her child is a broken one. It's still an important one, right? And it is all the more important when it is a strong, vibrant, thriving relationship. And when you get to know someone and you get to love them, you automatically care about the people who are important to them. Yeah, like imagine if you started dating someone and they were like, "Oh, do you want to come home and meet my family?" And your response was like, "Nah, <laughs> I'm good." Like. Then you would assume that the person you're dating probably isn't actually that important to you, right? So it's the same with us. The relationship between God and His mother is such a powerful one, full of so much love. It's so important that, of course, it becomes important to us as well. When we get to know Him, we want to get to know His mom. Okay. The second reason why we should love and venerate Mary is that she is. Perfect. Okay. Or perhaps a better way of putting this is to say that she is immaculate. Okay. She was born without the stain of original sin on her soul. Now, you might hear that and sort of reel back in horror and be like, "Hang on a second. What do you mean, Caitlin? You've just gotten through telling us that Mary is a created being just like the rest of us. What do you mean she's immaculate? She was born without original sin. Okay. Let's break it down." God is the only being ever who has had a chance to, in a sense, kind of design his own mum, right? Like God made Mary, and He could make her however He wanted to. Now think about it: if you had the chance to make your mum, right, what would she look like? My guess is that she would look a lot like she does now, but maybe you would sort of amp up her her goodness and perfections, right? It would be her, but perfected. So the same goes for God, right? God made a mother who was worthy to bear God Himself in her womb. Right, and this is something that again the early church fathers picked up on. Like Saint Augustine in the fifth century writes about this, and I'm paraphrasing because the quote itself is a bit sort of long and clunky. But essentially, what he says in his work called On Nature and Grace, he says that basically, of course, God in making Mary would make her as perfect as possible. He would make her worthy to bear him. And so, what Saint Augustine and again many of the other early church fathers believed was that God made Mary free from the stain of original sin. In other words, Mary, like Adam and Eve, had both the preternatural and the supernatural gifts. She was born in a state of grace, and with all of the gifts that were necessary to ensure that she never actually committed a sin, she remained completely spotless. Side note: This is also why the church believes that Mary was taken up into heaven, body and soul, at the end of her life. Remember when we talked about original sin, and we said that one of the preternatural gifts was immortality, right? Well, Mary had the preternatural gifts, so at the end of her life, rather than letting her body decay on earth, God took her to heaven, body and soul, to be with Him. So, for instance, Saint Ambrose in the year three eighty seven writes that Mary was a virgin 
whom grace had made inviolate, free of every stain of sin. Now, the early church fathers believed that God did this not just because she was his mother and he loved her and he wanted her to be worthy, but also because they interpreted Mary as being what they called the new Eve. Okay, so this is something that comes up again and again in the early writings of the church, the idea that Mary is the new Eve. So, for instance, Irenaeus writes that the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. What the virgin Eve bound through her disbelief, Mary loosened by her faith. So the early church fathers drew parallels between Eve and Mary. And this came from a reading of Genesis, right? So when we read Genesis, we notice that in the first few chapters, up until that first sin that Adam and Eve commit, Eve is only ever referred to as the woman, right? Or as woman, i.e. like the woman, the mother of the human race. Okay. Now, after the fall, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed, he will crush your head. So what the early church saw here was that God was saying that there will be another woman, okay, and her seed, her son, will crush your head. So there's this foreshadowing of the idea that we had Adam and Eve, okay, but that there would be a new Adam. And just as there's a new Adam, there would be a new Eve. And then in the Gospel of John, you have Jesus right at the point where he's beginning his public ministry at the wedding feast of Cana, looking at Mary and saying to her, woman. Now, that's not just Jesus being dismissive of his mother, right? Just being like, woman, <laughs> like as if Jesus could ever be dismissive of anyone, let alone his mum. Okay, that's Jesus making reference to the woman, right? To Eve. And then again, when Christ is on the cross, right at that moment when his mission is reaching its fulfillment, he looks at Mary and calls her woman. Now, if you would like to read more about this idea of Mary as the new Eve, okay, the biblical parallels between Eve and other holy women in the Bible leading up to Mary, I would recommend two books. The first is by Scott Hahn, and it's called Hail Holy Queen. And the second is by Tim Staples, and it's called Behold Your Mother. Both of these books spend a lot of time on the biblical evidence for Mary as the new Eve. They are also, helpfully, very well written and easy to read. Okay, so I would highly recommend either or both of those books. And while we're on it, I also would like to flag, I mean, it probably goes without saying, but I think it's very worthwhile to spend some time reading the writings of the early church fathers. Okay, because it's pretty amazing when you go back to the writings of the earliest Christians, you see how little has changed between then and now in terms of what the church believes. 
So you can actually find a lot of the writings of the Church Fathers just on the internet. Um, there's also a book called Glimpses of the Church Fathers, which is really good because it's basically just like some key excerpts from the early Church Fathers organized according to theme. So that's a really good one if you want to kind of like glimpse through and be like, oh, okay, what did the early church have to say about, you know, this particular theme? Um, that's a really good book as well. So the idea that Mary was born free of the stain of original sin was something that was only formally declared by the church church in the year 1854. So for that reason, some people look at that declaration and they go, oh, well, that's just something that was just made up a couple of hundred years ago. But in actual fact, it was something that many of the earliest church fathers believed in and remained part of Christian tradition right up until the Reformation. So one thing to bear in mind is that the Catholic Church doesn't usually define something as dogma unless it is in dispute, right? Because there's no need to. Yeah, there's no need, for instance, for me to walk out of my house every day and say, everyone, the sky is blue. I just need you all to know that the sky is blue. Okay, people would look at me and be like, Caitlin, you're crazy. We all know that. Why would you say that? Okay, but if there's disagreement about the color of the sky, then we do need to say, okay, it's actually a blue sky. Now, if Mary is the new Eve and she was born without the stain of original sin, does that mean that she didn't need a savior? Because if that's the case, then surely we are elevating her above the rest of humanity, yeah? And treating her differently. Surely Mary, just like the rest of us, needed to be saved from original sin. And the answer to that is, yes, of course she did. But the Catholic Church teaches that God, who exists outside of time and can literally do whatever he wants, applied the graces of his death and resurrection to Mary before she was even born, right? So this is, I'm paraphrasing from the actual encyclical of Pope Pius IX from 1854, in which this dogma was defined. Okay, Basically, it states that Mary was kept free from all stain of original sin in view of the merits of Jesus Christ. Okay, So Mary was just as much saved from her sins as the rest of us, it's just that she was saved retroactively. And again, I'm borrowing from Father Mike Schmitz here, someone who is vaccinated against a disease is just as much saved from it as someone who gets the disease and is then cured, right? So Mary was saved just like the rest of us, okay? She needed Jesus just like the rest of us. And her role in salvation history wasn't to earn our salvation, okay? Jesus did that, but she cooperated with him by saying yes to him and becoming his mother, bringing him into the world, okay? She was instrumental in our salvation. Now, a final reason, and one of the best reasons why we should love and venerate Our Lady, is because God asked us to, right? Jesus asked us to love her. So we see this in John's Gospel, right? Right at the moment of the crucifixion, as Jesus is dying with one of his last breaths, he turns to his mother and says, Woman, behold your son. And then he turns to John and he says, Behold your mother. Now take note of the fact that Jesus doesn't refer to his mother as Mary, okay, or as mother. He says, Woman, behold your son. And as we said earlier, that name, woman, was incredibly meaningful because it evoked that parallel between Eve, who was the mother of all humans, okay, and Mary, who is the new Eve. And then he turns to John and he doesn't use John's name. He just says, behold your mother. 
Now, of course, there is a literal element to this moment, right? John goes on to tell us that from that moment, he took Mary into his home. Okay, so Christ was actually asking John, take care of my mother. But at the same time, I mean, first of all, John is a saint who's one of the disciples. Like, of course, the apostles are going to take care of Mary. But nonetheless, Jesus uses one of his last breaths to say this to John. And if you study the Gospels and you look at the things that Jesus says when he is on the cross, you see that everything he says is deeply significant, okay, on a spiritual as well as a human level. Jesus is in the last moments of his agony, okay? He's not throwing things around willy-nilly or saying sentimental nice things or whatever. He's saying incredibly important, meaningful things on the cross. So yes, he is asking John to look after Mary, but the church also understands that he is asking us to look after Mary, to take Mary in as our own mother, Now, this is an incredible gift for us as Christians, that God has given us a mother in heaven. And of course, God is the fullness of both femininity and masculinity, right? But when he took on a human form, he took on a male human form. So sometimes we can sort of lose sight of that and we can feel a bit intimidated or a bit like, I don't know how to approach God or what if he's angry with me or he's really harsh or whatever. And how beautiful that God knows that sometimes we just need a mum that we can go to and hide behind her skirt and hold her hand and know that she will bring us to Christ. And I have seen this so many times in my own life with friends who aren't even Christian, right? Like they're not even practicing a particular faith or they feel really far from God or really cut off from God. But they take great comfort in Our Lady, in saying the Hail Mary or in saying the Rosary. And we can't go wrong in sticking close to Mary because Mary is always close to our Lord. She's always near her son. So when in doubt, go to Our Lady, right? And then just trust that she will bring you or whatever it is that you've given her, that she'll bring it to Christ. Okay, now that is all we've got time for today. I'm sorry, we didn't even, we've barely skimmed the surface. There is so much more that we could say about Our Lady, but we're going to leave it there for this week. Next episode, we're going to talk about the death and resurrection of Christ. Such fun. I can't wait for that. And I'm going to look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Bye.